We're going to be reading from God's Word now together from the book of Daniel, chapter 5. We've been working way through the book of Daniel and the, the story of Daniel and his friends that are dragged away from Jerusalem when it's destroyed, dragged into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar, and trying to work out what it means to live faithfully to God in a land that doesn't know Him, in a culture that is alien to them. What does it mean to live faithfully in that place in a way that is, is right, is before God, but is also blessing this place, this hostile place sometimes that they're in? And we've been following the story through the four chapters. We now come to the fifth chapter, and we've jumped ahead in time a little bit. This is about 50 years after Daniel has been dragged into Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for about 23 years by this time, and there is a new king on the block. So let's pick up the story at chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Bel Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles his wives and concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine. They praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Suddenly, the finger of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners, and he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads the writing and tells me what it means, will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed on their neck, and they will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen Hearing the voices of the king and his nobles came into the banqueting hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In, in the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret the dreams, explain the riddles, and solve the difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read the writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, 
I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed on your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourselves, give your reward to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your Majesty, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position that God gave him, all the nations and the peoples of, la of the, every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived in the wild, the wild donkeys and ate the grass of the ox. His body was drenched in the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them all anyone he wishes. But you... Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is what it is written. Many, many, tekel, parson. And here is what these words mean. Many. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then, at Belshazzar, Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed on his neck and he was promoted to the third highest in the kingdom. <laughs> but that very night, the king of Babylon was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. It was a long reading, but it's a great story, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we read this story from so long ago. And yet we pray today as we meditate on it that you would speak to us words that are for us today. The writing is on the wall. Your days are numbered. We've heard those expressions so many times that perhaps we'd forgotten that they come from the book of Daniel. They come fearfully into the English language with those words that tell us it's finished. It's all over. The historical record is quite clear. In 539 BC, I remember it well, it was September. There was a battle 50 miles north of Babylon, the Battle of Opis. And there the last king of Babylon was defeated the Persian power had been growing for years, but that year they defeated the king 
And in a surprise attack in the month of October, just a few weeks later, they took the city of Babylon, and it was all over. So we are reading a story that is set in that very small window between September and October, with the Persians literally at the door. I don't know if you've seen the, 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 the German movie Downfall, which is all about Hitler and his bunker in those last days in Berlin and the, fault, the sort of sense of, of, of ridiculousness of the whole thing. Well, this is, in a sense, the downfall of Babylon. It's 50 years since Daniel had been brought there. Nebuchadnezzar was now dead 20 years. The new king, Belshazzar, described here as his son, but probably more accurately translated as his descendant, his successor, is now in charge. And the story begins at this ridiculous party. They're literally fiddling while the city is about to burn. Thousands of nobles gathering together, lots of women and lots of wine and lots of song. What's the king doing? Is he trying to raise morale? Is he in denial about what's about to happen? The Persians are literally at the door. And he takes the goblets, the holy items that, that, that King Nebuchadnezzar had stolen or taken from Jerusalem, from the temple, and he does what Nebuchadnezzar in all his glory never dared to do. He uses them for a drinking game. Suddenly, there, as they toast the gods of silver and gold, the big finger appears. What's going on here? Why is he doing this? Well, what do people do when the writing is on the wall? What do people do when they suddenly feel very, very insecure? Well, I know what most of us do. What we start to do is to say, look at the things I've done. Look at how significant I am. Look at the achievements I've made. We start to hang on to everything that we've got. Look at all I've conquered. Look at all that gives me significance because we can't face the dreaded reality of what is about to happen. So we distract, don't we? We deflect and we try to give ourselves some sort of answer in our own achievement. Why is that? Because ultimately we can't face the idea that we are powerless. That actually in the big scale of things, we're not significant. That there is nothing that we can do. That all our plans and our strutting and whatever else we do, as it was here, is finally irrelevant. That's just too horrible to contemplate. And so we find ways to evade it. So the king struts his stuff. He summons his party. He pretends that everything's just going to go on as before. And he shows he's got power as he takes these holy items. I'm still in control. I still matter. I'm still bigger than the gods and everything else. And maybe if I do the right thing, the gods will sort me out and I'll be all right. I'm still important. It's like, again, Hitler in that bunker, if you've watched the film, where he's sending out instructions to armies that no longer exist. Kidding on. The game just keeps rolling on and he can finally win. It's very significant when we come to a funeral service. And as, as Christians, 
at a funeral service, the first thing we want to do is proclaim the hope of the resurrection to come in Jesus Christ. That is what gives us hope and meaning and a reason to go on. The promises of God that are made of everlasting life. Now, as part of that service, we also want to give thanks for the life of the person that has, has lived. We do that in a, in a eulogy, and that's, that, that's proper. We want to give God thanks for all of that. But what I find particularly depressing is that as faith in those promises of God has decreased in our society, so the eulogies have got more and more prominent. And in fact, if you go to a humanist service, all you've got is the eulogy. Because all you've got is trying to say there is some significance here. This must give us some hope, and yet it fails at the end because it's got no words other than, well, we will remember, but then who will remember when we are gone? But for the Christian, obviously, we are proclaiming that God will remember, that God gives significance, that God values this person, that God will proclaim the resurrection to eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that is what makes all the difference. We hunt all the time in our lives for significance. Some chase it in relationships, some in career achievements, some in their academic bits, some in their, their wonderful houses, all the time trying to say to the world, I matter, I'm significant. And we do it in religion as well. Sometimes, like Nebuchadnezzar praising the gods of silver and gold and iron, we're trying to do something that, that might have the gods go on our sides. If we do the right religious thing, we'll be okay. But what happens here? finger of God's judgment comes tumbling down on his head. And we're told in verse 6, he's scared. In fact, it's lovely. It, it translates here in the NIV, his, his legs were weak. And as I was reading the commentator, it said that that's actually a bit of a euphemism because what it actually says is his functions were not working. Or we might say colloquial, he beat himself. He was so scared. Why is he so scared? Is it because it's a big spooky hand? No, I think it's much more than that. There's something scarier than all the monsters in the world, something that we really fear. And it's this, that suddenly he's been brought to the reality that he's not in control, that it doesn't matter what he does. He's having to face the dark reality in his case that something awful has happened. There's actually a battle already been fought and they lost that battle. And so it's just a matter of time till the whole thing unravels. But I think also at that point, there's a fear of God himself. God who makes the ultimate significant. No, a fear of God isn't necessarily a bad thing. The, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is, is, is the beginning of wisdom. But the fear of the Lord for those that love the Lord and, and relate to the Lord is wisdom because as we are afraid of God's holiness and His significance, so we hear the word that comes from Him in love as our Father. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. In fact, it, I've said this before, I think the most common command in the whole of Scripture is not, thou shalt not, or thou shalt. It's do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because I am here. I love you. I give you your significance. I hold your life in my hand. Surrender to that, and all 
will be well. But the fearful reality first that Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, that the the king is, is struggling with here is this, and it is the unerving thing that says, you know what? You're not in control. You're not the center of the universe. You're not yourself significant. Nobody's going to remember you and your empire and your kingdom. It's just another one in the history books of the British Museum when you go down there. All the things that you thought were important as you, you did your politics or you engaged in whatever, it's nothing. So Mel, Bel, Belshazzar, at this point, so scared, what does he do? <laughs> he calls in the wise men. Now, actually, this is a bit of comic relief in what's really, really um, dark here in this chapter, because if you've been reading the last five chapters, you'll see that's what the kings always do. doesn't matter whether it's a dream or a vision or whatever it is, they call in the wise men, the chanters, the diviners, and all the astrologers, and all they trundle in, and every single time, in every single chapter, this crowd of charlatans has come in. What have they achieved? Nothing. So here we go again. We're learning no lessons at all. We've brought in all the experts, and there's no value in them at all. I don't know what the equivalent today would be. It'd be maybe the scientists, the philosophers, the therapists, and the psychologists. Now, I don't want to call them charlatans. That would make me really anti-scientific, not at all. But there is a significance. There is a, a parallel with it because ultimately, all the experts in the world with all their modern knowledge can't answer certain questions. What is my significance? Why do I matter? Why does my life matter? What happens when I die? What is right? What is wrong? And how do I get rid of this sense of failure and guilt? No expert will do that for me. No therapist will get to the heart of that. The psychologist will tell you what you need is a sense of self-worth, but what the psychologist cannot tell you is why you're worth anything. Only the Word of God can do that. And ultimately, all the things we think are important, human rights and human values and respecting folk, all rest on something that is revealed in the Word of God that we are made in the image of God, and each one is significant to God, even if nobody else remembers them, even if they achieve nothing in their life because they are loved by God. And that gives significance to everything. So here we have the king idiotically making the same mistakes, seeking in the same empty places. But then we're introduced to one character who knows different, the queen. The woman always knows best. In this case, the queen is probably not his wife because all the women and the the concubines and the whatever are already there. She obviously wasn't at the party. She comes in. So we're looking probably at an older woman, a queen mother here. And most of the commentators think it was probably the wife of old King Nebuchadnezzar that comes in. You can imagine this old lady, and she comes in. And she has one advantage. She's not a believer, she's not a Christian, she's not a Jew, but she has one advantage. She's got a memory. And she remembers the lessons that have been learned by old King Nebuchadnezzar in the last four chapters. And she tells him exactly this. I will tell you the story of Nebuchadnezzar, my husband. I will tell you how he was a powerful man, but an insecure man. A man who was always trying to strut his stuff because he had to have significance. And what did he learn? He found significance when he bowed the knee and acknowledged that there was a God higher than him. 
And when he forgot that, he lost everything. And when he remembered that, he was restored to everything. You know, she may not be a believer, but what she's telling him is that heritage of faith. Our country, sadly, today, we don't have that heritage of faith. Our children are not taught it in schools and other places. And I would simply say this to you, even if you struggle to share faith with young folk, tell the Bible stories. Do it to your children. Tell them. Tell them the stories. Tell them the stories of what was, because this is the residue that when things start to go wrong and when the questions start to get asked that people turn back to. Tell the Bible stories. Read the Bible stories. If you've got young children or grandchildren, get over to that glow center. Get a little children's Bible and just start telling the Bible stories, the residue faith. But then, of course, what the queen does is she points to Daniel. I don't have the answer, she says. And by the way, that's an okay thing when people ask you questions. I don't know, but I know a man that does. Get Daniel. And so the king calls him in, and again, there's another lovely comic bit at this point because the king says to him, here, have the robes, and if you can tell me all this, I'll promote you. You'll be the third person in the kingdom. Yeah, for 12 hours, says Daniel. It's a great promotion. <laughs> Fastest cabinet reshuffle in the world. You get appointed, and then the government's tossed out four hours later. The, 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 You've you got to read this story again and again. These comic turns are all over it. No, says Daniel, you can keep your useless junk. But I will give you the wisdom. I will allow you to hear the word of the Lord hear the word of the Lord. That is what you need at this moment. And when we look for our significance, we need to hear that too. We need to hear the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes. It gives you a wisdom that the world cannot give you. First of all, because it allows you to face the realities. Sometimes people think that the Bible is a you know, bunch of fantasies. It takes you somewhere else. Here's the thing. The Bible, if you read it, talks about death an awful lot, which we don't want to talk about. It tells us that we're mortal. And it has that discussion in a climate where we don't have to fear. Now, what we do now is we say, well, we just don't want to talk about that because we are too afraid. And by the way, you don't have to be a Christian to realize that that's the reality, that we are mortal, that we are not in control. The disconcertion of the truth that the Bible gives us, but it also comes with hope. So I want to say to all of you today, read this book. Let it shape you. Let it transform you. Trust it. For here is how God has spoken to his people time and time again. Our, our, our modern society, by the way, just says, well, there's lots of opinions and the Bible's just another one of them. Church has always said that we have, as we have found this, found that God has spoken, transforms us. You know, just to give you one little historical example, Belshazzar, that's named in this, in, this, in this book as the last king of Babylon, for a long time that was a problem because when we found the, well, we found, I'm talking in the 1700s, by the way, when human beings found, the scholars found, the records of Babylon and the fall of Babylon, all these historical bits, there was no mention of a king, Belshazzar. The last king of Babylon in the records was a guy called Nabonidus. And for a long time, 
sniffy people said, well, see, the Bible just made that up. It just put the names. They got it wrong. The Bible can't be trusted. It's, it's a storybook. It's not, a, it's not got any history to it. And they rejected all of it. And then what happened was they found a steel, an inscription of the fall of Babylon. They found it in the Middle East. And lo and behold, there was Belshazzar in the scroll. And in fact, Belshazzar, it turns out, was the son of Nabonidus, the last king of Babylon. More significantly, he was his co-ruler. That is, quite often in the Middle East, what they would do is one king would appoint not just a crown prince, but would actually share the reign with him. Moreover, Nabonidus put Belshazzar in charge of the city of Babylon which is exactly what we found here. And Nabonidus went and fought the battle 50 miles north where he was killed. And so suddenly the Bible is dead on. And I just say that again and again. People will say there's a problem in the Bible. And sometimes I, I, I want to say, well, we might just not have found the solution yet. This Bible we find so often to be true. It's not a history book. It's not a science book. But it is a book that we can trust in which God speaks to all of life. You know, I, I realize modern people read the Bible and they say, <clears throat> well, you know, there's this bit and I can't accept this. So it can't be true. I can't accept this. I, I, this, this moral teaching, I don't agree with this. But here's the question I, I would just ask when we do that is, are we looking for God or are we looking for an idol? You see, if you're looking for an idol, what you're actually doing is saying, I want a God I can shape. I want a God that agrees with me. I want a God that has my values, has my outlook, has my politics, and that type of God I can believe in. But if you think about it for a moment, if there is a real God and he has spoken, it might just be that when you come into contact with him and you start to hear what he's saying and what he thinks is right and wrong and what he's doing, it doesn't agree with you or your culture or 20th century thinking, 21st century thinking, or whatever else it is. That's what you would expect, that we have to bow the knee to him and not the other way around. The Bible comes and judges us, not us. And again, it's this bit that says to us, you are not the big decider. You do not have all the ultimate significance or all the answers and know what's right and wrong, like this big king strutting his stuff. You have to learn a new humility. And so Daniel comes in, and Daniel tells the full Bible story of Nebuchadnezzar. And the words, sorry, I should have shown you the least pictures of his speaking, I never remember. Um, the words he says to him, he says, God gave Nebuchadnezzar all he had. God gave him it. God gave him the glory. God gave him the authority. You see, Nebuchadnezzar might have been a very powerful king, but he's nothing compared to the one who holds the whole world in his hands. And until Nebuchadnezzar realized that, he had no significance. And he goes on to say to this new king, you knew this. You knew these stories, but you didn't pay a blind bit of attention. And you raised yourself up, and so now God's judgment will fall. And here's the secret of the gospel. You can make yourself as significant as you want. You can invent the new iPhone and be the, the leader of whatever it is. You can be the next prime minister, and you can do all these things, but it doesn't in the end matter 
whether you achieve all these things or you're the village idiot. It doesn't matter what your intellect is or your education is or your background is or your ability is because our ultimate significance is in God. You're proud and you think you did all these things. Or you're proud and you think you can't do all these things. It doesn't, in the end, make any difference. But God's Word comes to us. And when God's Word comes, He reminds us of all that truth, that we are mortal, that we fail, that all flesh is like grass. These great empires, these castles in the skies that we build, these great palaces will all in the end come to nothing. But if you understand that everything is given by Him, then suddenly everything changes. Now, this passage is, is difficult in some ways because it seems at the end God's coming with judgment and we sort of cry away. That's not a very hopeful message, is it? But think of it this way. A couple of things. First of all, Daniel might have just said, Heh, Babylon's going to get wrecked. That's fantastic. They wrecked my city in Jerusalem 50 years ago. I'm absolutely delighted that Babylon's going to get it. They should get it. And that's sometimes how people do with God's judgment. You know, nah, you'll get it. God will show them. But actually, Daniel doesn't do that at all because Daniel spent the last 50 years invested in the city. It might have been an evil city that destroyed his people, but he's loved it. He's served it. He's worked in it. He's done exactly what Jeremiah told them to do. He's sought the good of the community and the city that he's found himself in. And he'll continue to do that even after this particular empire has fallen. He'll serve the next one. We'll see that in chapter 6. So it matters. Daniel has invested himself in this city despite all its failings, just as God has invested himself in our world, despite all its sin and its brokenness. That's the mystery of the gospel, isn't it? God, who judges the whole world, who sees all its evil, who, who, who exposes the, the wrong that is in human hearts, sent His Son in love, not just to judge the world, but to save the world, to redeem the world, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so Daniel, completely committed to it, and there's hope here also. The story, if we were to read on, we would find that when Babylon fell and the Persians came in, the new king issued a decree. And the decree was that the Jewish people could go home. So here was God's overruling of all that was evil to bring all that was good. Ezra and Nehemiah were to go and rebuild the temple and to create the land into which the Messiah would come. But all of this comes this way, a significance that comes when we bow the knee and acknowledge the Lord that is over us. And by the way, judgment is part of that too, because if there is no day of reckoning, if there is no judgment day, if there is no justice in the world, then what we do doesn't have any significance. If you're oppressed and you're poor and that's your lot, then there is no writing it. And if you get away with murder, literally, there's no reckoning. But what God is saying as He talks about the day that comes of judgment and reckoning is saying this, actually, you have a significance. What you do does matter because it matters to me. 
And yes, I will come in judgment. But I also offer you, if you repent, and if you know my salvation that I offer as my free gift to you, then that judgment will not be the last word, but my word of forgiveness and approval and love. For I offer to make you mine as I give my son for you. Our significance is in the word of God to us and in the word made flesh in Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to sing before we pray, speak, O Lord.